Blessings in Jesus, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us for a midweek Bible study. We'll be drawing to a close of the present series on Messiah and prophecy and Psalms, and we'll be looking to begin a new one. We'll be concluding tonight with Psalm 133. Now, Psalm 133 is not exactly the last psalm that has messianic and prophetic material about the Messiah in it, but it's the last one where it is a major theme of the psalm, and we've been concentrating on Messiah and prophecy, so we've been looking at the major ones. More about that in a moment. Uh, a couple of things. This weekend, I am due to be on Saturday in Liverpool at Allerton at the All Saints Center with Steve McDonald, and <clears throat> thanks to Steve for organizing it. We shall be there on Saturday. We will have two meetings. They're advertised on the Moria website. Um, the first, we'll have two teachings. One teaching shall be on the unsliced loaf, the unsized loaf, and we'll be looking at the relationship between the book of Genesis and the book of Revelation, which Tim Quinn suggested we do sometime. So we're going to be doing that on Saturday. Uh, on Sunday, uh, the second one on Saturday, sorry, we will be looking at Purim. So let me begin by wishing everyone who's watching happy Purim and to our Irish friends, happy St. Patrick's Day. Happy St. Patrick's Day. I assure you, Padrique was neither a Catholic nor a Protestant. So we can all be happy. <clears throat> um, if you want to sneak a Guinness when no one's looking, I won't say you're condemned, but that's between you and the Lord. I don't have any. I'm just drinking green tea tonight. But it's St. Patrick's Day, and it is Purim. Tomorrow is Shoshan Purim, the Feast of Esther. So <clears throat> we will be looking in Liverpool for a second session at Esther and Prophecy, or Purim, sorry, Purim and Prophecy. We'll be looking at Revelation chapter 13, Daniel chapter 12, and Esther chapter 3. It'll be concerning the return of the Lord, events leading up to the return of the Lord, um, concerning Antichrist and so forth. It'll be the relationship in terms of time, the time frame relationship between Daniel chapter 12, uh, the book of Esther, and then Revelation 13. We'll be putting these together in, in a kind of a timeline. Uh, not that I'm setting any specific timeline. I don't like to see those charts. This will happen. This will happen. This will happen. But we want to analyze these scriptures in light of each other. They are very important to be understood in terms of time frame of, of prophecy. So that'll be our second subject, Purim and Prophecy in Liverpool. The first one will be the unsliced loaf. Uh, if you can join us, if you're in Liverpool, Merseyside, if you're on the Wirral or adjacent areas of East Lanx or Jester, please, please do come see us. The times are available on the Moriel website, moriel.org. Steve, are you listening? Is Steve McDonald there? Can we unmute Steve for a moment? I guess we can't. Hi. Hi. Give us the times, please. Two o'clock is starting out, yeah. Two o'clock till six. Two to six. And Allerton is uh, up Men Love Avenue, that way, Liverpool. Yeah, there's a big Tesco's really close to it. Okay. A big Tesco's is, is a good landmark. Okay. Okay. Uh, again, you can sat and have the address from the Morio website. If you're going to join us, we look forward to seeing you at two o'clock on Saturday. Those will be the subjects. And our thanks to Steve. Steve, please email me your cell phone number. Beryl will give you mine. I've just got the email off Beryl. So all right. I'll answer it. All right. All right. It's going to be great. It's going to be great. Good. And I promise we will not sing our first hymn, will not be Maggie, Maggie May. <laughs> <laughs> we'll do that tonight instead. All right. Oh, good okay. Um, the Moriel Residential Conference in May to be held at Yarnfield in the uh, West Midlands. We filled up the first time, but then when COVID regulations were relaxed, they gave us more spaces. So we filled those up, 
And now we completely filled everything they gave us. But Beryl just found out this past week that there was another group penciled in that hasn't booked. And they will give us even some more rooms. So everything they've given us, we've completely filled up. But there's a handful of rooms left. But people will need to, uh, Yarnfield will require them to uh, pay the full booking now. The booking's in full or due this coming week. But uh, if you want to book now, it's not just the deposit. You've got to pay the whole thing or they won't. Yarn Fields won't give you a place, but Moriel may may seemingly have the entire entire place. Um, so they've given us even more room still. We filled up the first batch. They gave us more. We filled that, and now they're giving us just a few more with a few more spaces. And I'll be joined, of course, by uh, our brother David Noakes. And uh, one of the subjects we'll be looking at is the <clears throat> prologue and introduction to the servant songs from the point of view of, 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 of prophecy and of the point of view of what's happening happening now uh, in the world in which we live and in the church in which we live and in the Israel in which we, we see. So that will be at the Moriel Conference uh, at Yarnfield in the West Midlands, 20th to 22nd of May. Details also available on the Moriel website. We filled up. Nobody could get in, but they've given us a few more rooms now, once again, for the third time. God bless them. I don't like turning people away. I really don't like turning people away. But fire regulations and so forth have to do what you have to do. Okay. Now, I'd like to get into tonight's Bible study, but before I do that, there is one more thing we need to do. We ask people to pray about and give us consideration about what they would like to study. Um, from the Old Testament, it would seem that people were favoring the book of Exodus if they wanted to do the old. Some people think that we just did something from the old. We should now do something from the new. The old, the new go back and forth like that, book to book, and they they may have a, a fair point, okay? But for those wishing to stay in the Old Testament, it seems Exodus is the most favored. For those wishing to go to the New Testament, the two most favorite are, or actually the three most favorite, are Galatians, Romans, and Acts. Now, we are doing Galatians already. Sandy is doing Galatians. Sandy Simpson is doing Galatians on his Bible study. So that is not going to be replicated or duplicated or imitated. It's basically between the book of Romans and the book of Acts. Both of them will be a very long series, like, like the one we've just had. They'll be they'll go on for quite some time. So consider carefully. Now, I realize we have people watching a live stream who won't have a vote, but you can have, I'm, I'm just going by what people generally said. We have asked everyone to pray about it. Exodus, Romans, or Acts. Uh, and they're all going to be a fairly long series. So does anybody want to <clears throat> offer a comment or a thumbs up or a thumbs down or a protest or a whatever? Sandy, can you find that if anybody wants, you know, to say something? Edwina wants Romans. Tracy wants Exodus. Mark wants Acts. Romans. Exodus. Exodus. Romans, ex, now Romans, 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 Exodus, Exodus, well, Acts is pretty well out then, Romans, 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 Exodus, Romans, Romans has it by a slight margin, we'll begin with the book of Romans, okay, if you voted for Exodus or Acts, Excuse me, Uh But uh, perhaps a future point. It'll be Romans then. We'll commence with the book of Romans next week. May the Lord be with us tonight. Turn with me, please, to Psalm 133. Well known for its Hebrew chorus. Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. As many of you know, Hine Matov Umanaim 
Shevet Achim, Gan Yachad. It's like the precious oil upon the head coming down upon the beard, even Aaron's beard, coming down upon the edge of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon coming down upon the mountains of Zion, for there the Lord commanded the blessing, life forever. Let's begin. How good and how pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. This is a song of ascent composed by David. Composed by David. Now that's interesting in itself. Remember, at David's time, previously the tent, the tabernacle, had been in Shiloh for 200 years. Shiloh was the de facto religious capital, as it were, of, of, of the Jewish people for two centuries, Shiloh, Shiloh. But now with David, it comes to Jerusalem, only the temple was not yet built. They were still worshiping in, in a tent, okay? Solomon had not built the temple as yet. David began to accumulate the goods for him. But not only did David make provision for the physical construction of the temple that would be assisted by the Gentiles who, who were benevolent to Israel and probably worshipers of the Jewish God under King Hiram, so th those Phoenicians at that time, but he also left a spiritual and a liturgical preparation, one of which is Psalm 133. David writes this song of ascent before the temple is even yet built for Mount Zion. Remember, you always go up to Jerusalem, La Alot, it would be sung by pilgrims for the pilgrim feasts. That is Passover, of course, and, you know, first fruits, Passover. It is the Pentecost, the Feast of Weeks, Hag Shavuot, and it is the Feast of Tabernacles, Hag Sukkot, or the Feast of Booths in the autumn. Hence, it is for that, the arrival of pilgrims. Behold how good and pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity, as you know in the Hebrew. Let's begin with the ach, uh, with the yachad, achdut, achdut, a plural oneness. As some of you know, when they asked Jesus the greatest commandment, he said, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is oneness. Shema Israel Adonai Eluhenu Adonai Echad Achdut. Achdut. The number one as a numerical digit was originally in the scripture and in the Hebrew language, Yahid. Yahid, not Echad. But Moses Maimonides, the rabbi known as Rambam, changed it in the Middle Ages because he wanted to point Jews away from believing in the plurality of the Godhead or the triunity of the Godhead as Christians did. He wanted to point Jews away from this and make it as it was a non-Jewish belief. So he actually changed the number Yahid to Ahad, but Ahad meant a plural or compound oneness, a plural compound oneness. Here, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. Now, people take that as a statement of monotheism, which it is. It is not wrong to say that. It is a statement of monotheism, but it's a statement of something much deeper of the eternal nature of the Godhead, of God's own particular nature. Now, we deal with this on the teaching that we have on uh, the high priestly prayer of Jesus. There's a memorial recorded teaching on the high priestly prayer of Jesus. I elaborate on this. The relationship between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit within the Godhead is addressed more in depth on <clears throat> the teaching on the uh, high priestly prayer. But this, however, is about the high priest. This is about the high priest. Well, let's look at it. Jesus being our high priest, of course. So in the high priestly prayer, we see the theme of oneness. But here, where you see the high priest in the Old Testament, 
In Psalm 133, it's the same idea of oneness. Oneness. We know this to be the oneness of the Godhead, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. The Father, the Son, and Holy Spirit. Expressed different ways, reflected different ways. As we've said many times, we can only partially understand it now. We can understand it well enough to know it exists, and we can understand it based on John 14 to John 17 functionally. But to understand its eternal essence, that will take place when we see what Stephen saw. When Stephen saw Jesus at the right hand of the Father, and he was filled with the Spirit, when there was the entire presence of the triunity of the Godhead, Trinity, if you want to use that term, that's when we will understand it, when we see the Lord. Until we see the Lord, until we see what Stephen saw, okay, and and what, what do you see when you give up the ghost? Well, if you're a Christian, it's no mystery. We're going to see what Stephen saw, okay? Then we will understand this eternal mystery beyond what we are capable of understanding it now. But that's not to say we can't understand that it exists and that we can't understand certain things about it. As we talked about, we have a body because God has a body. Prepare thou a body for me, the scripture says. We have Christophanies, physical manifestations of Jesus in in fleshment, in, in flesh, in his flesh, in fleshments of Christ in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew scriptures, way back to the garden, when Adam heard God walking in the garden, it was the one we call Jesus, the eternal Son of God. Okay, and of course, uh, the angel of the Lord, who the rabbis refer to as Metatron, of course, the uh, angel who wrestled with Jacob um, at the brook of Jabbok at Peniel, and the angel of the Lord manifested with, to the parents of, of Samson and so forth. <clears throat> the angel of the Lord that went before Israel in the book of Numbers. These are Old Testament apparitions of Christ, as was the captain of the Lord of hosts that Joshua saw. Uh, God has a body. He has a physical body. Uh, therefore, he gave us physical bodies. God has a spirit. Therefore, he has given us a spirit. God has the Holy Spirit. He's given us a spirit. Unsaved people are spiritually dead, but they have a spirit. It's just that it's dead. Okay. He gave us a spirit because he has one. And who has known the mind of the Father, the mind, the soul? We have a mind because God does. The spirit searches the depths of God. Can you... Separate your body, your soul, that is your consciousness, and your spirit. Well, no, you can't separate them, but you can distinguish between them. So it is with the Godhead. Somebody becomes ill, their mind, they want to do one thing. Their physical body does not allow them to. It's as if the body has a will of its own. The body wants to rest. With age, things slow down. With illness, things slow down. The body wants one thing. The mind could want another thing. I wish I could still do that or could still do this or whatever the situation may be. We have a battle between the new creation and the old. Our new creation, our spirit, in fellowship with the Holy Spirit, wants us to go one way. The old man, the old woman, wants to go another way. There are, as it were, three wills, the will of the body, the will of the spirit, and the will of the mind. In God, these things are in perfect eternal harmony. There is no disunity within the Godhead itself between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. There's an eternal unity. In us, we're always trying to get to this achdut that we were made on his image and likeness. We have a battle between the flesh, spirit, the mind. 
The idea is to get back to Achdut that we were created. When man fell, Achdut was interrupted. Now remember, as we've said on the John 14 to 17 tapes, the high priestly prayer teaching, Satan always attacks Achdut. Achdut. The first thing God did when he said, let us make man in our image and likeness, was make them male and female. He made them male and female, okay? X, Y, and double X, chromosomally. They didn't know that then, but we know it now. X, Y, and double X. A male is not a double X. A male is an XY. A female is not an XY. Homosexuality, lesbianism, any expression of these things are not simply abnormal. There is a spiritual demonic power on back of these things to destroy Achdut. Achdut only works with Adam and Eve. It cannot work, of course, with Adam and Steve. That's just the way it is. But the devil does not want the image and likeness of God to be reflected or replicated in the creation or in his creatures, his, his chief creatures, which are angels and men. He doesn't want it. You see this gross sexual stuff with both angels and men. When the Nephilim came down to Mount Hermon, as we'll see, was where it took place according to Jewish history in the book of Yasher, and they copulated with human women. We read about this in Genesis. We read about this in the epistle to Jude. They left their rightful abode. They began to function as sexual beings. Angels can appear as men. Paul says we can entertain angels unaware, but they left their rightful abode. They did something that was perverted and unnatural for them. Okay, it was perverted and unnatural for them. Well, so too, when you see people going into non-heterosexual expressions of sexuality, they're doing something unnatural to them. But the God of this world, even in an age of science, where people know about chromosomes, where people know about <laughs> DNA and the double helix, when people know about X and Y, they're passing laws that say a, a female and a male, forget that, a male who has a surgical resculpturing to resemble a female can compete on a female sports team, even though he has bigger orthomusculature because he's XY. Despite the fact that every... <laughs> Every cell in his body says he's XY. You legally have to consider him to be double X, despite what we know about science. Well, th this is a satanic attack on Achdut. Another satanic attack on Achdut, my apologies to those who know this from the high priestly prayer teaching, is, of course, non-therapeutic abortion. As we've explained, the Hebrew idiom, for consummating a marriage is Niknaspa, Niknaspa, like in the book of Ruth, for instance. And he went into her, and the Lord allowed her to conceive. One person goes inside of another person, and a third person is procreated. One in three, three in one. That reflects the triunity of the Godhead. Satan wants to attack this. So you have abortion that is when it's medically unwarranted, just using abortion as a form of birth control, kill the kid. Now, that even goes beyond this, because unsaved people cannot agape. There's only one case where an unsaved person could agape in Scripture, unconditionally love flatly, and that was they unconditionally loved evil. Somebody can be so demonized, they can unconditionally love evil. But that is a very rare case, but it, it's the case. Antichrist will be that. He will agape evil. He'll be a man who can unconditionally love, love evil. 
the way God unconditionally loves sinners, the Antichrist will unconditionally love sin because <clears throat> of the satanic nature. Well, unsaved people basically can't agape, but they can storga, storga. Storga is the highest form of love that an, a, a human is capable of. Only if somebody is born again and infused with the Holy Spirit can they be empowered to agape, can God's love enter them. But unsaved people can storga. The natural love that a woman has for her baby, a mother has for her baby, a father for his children, and, and so forth. Okay, Unsaved people can understand that. When you take that penultimate expression, the ultimate expression of God's love is giving his son, but the penultimate expression is the love you have for your baby. When you take that baby and kill it, and when you sacrifice it to demons, like happened in Judah under King Manasseh with the Moloch worship, or what they're doing today with the non-therapeutic abortion, ah. no, God gave his son. It, you're cheapening the death of the son or, or the daughter of the baby. It, it, salvation cost the life of God's son. How dare you take this picture of love that even unsaved people can understand and, and, and kill it? The American state of Maryland has now proposed legislation that would essentially amount to the first step towards postpartum abortion. In other words, if a baby survives an abortion and you kill it afterwards, it's not a crime. And if the mother or the obstetrician is charged with the crime, then they have a right to litigate and sue because their rights have been violated. This is how sick and demonic it has become. Well, this is how sick and demonic it became in Israel and Judah with the Moloch worship. And that's what's happening now. Completely sick. But what's on back of it? An attack on Achdut. You see it in homosexuality. You see it in abortion. We have to understand. Now, again, I know some of you know this from our other teaching on, <clears throat> on John 14 to 17. The high priestly prayer. Well, let's continue looking at this Achdut. Another example, as many of you know, is, of course, divorce. God hates divorce. He made them male and female. They shall become achad, one flesh. Marriage was to be permanent. Now remember, it's not who God has joined together. It is what God has joined together. In the eyes of God, the institution of holy matrimony, reflecting the oneness within the Godhead, Okay, is it supersedes supersedes the husband and wife themselves. In other words, when they enter marriage, they've entered into a relationship that's more important than themselves because the relationship reflects God. You get married and okay, you married married another believer, you're happily married. Once that first child is conceived, <laughs> the life of that baby is more important than the life of the mother or the father. The life of that baby comes first. It's more important. The kid is more important than the people who procreated the kid. Not that the mother and father are not important, but the baby is more important. Okay, Not that the bride and groom are not important, but the institution of holy wedlock is more important. It is not who God has joined together. It is what God has joined together. You marry somebody who you shouldn't have married. You marry some loser. or what? <laughs> that's down to you. It's the marriage that's sacred. But the relationship is no good. <laughs> okay. But it's the relationship. The mean, you know, it's like abortion. You better have a really, really good medical reason, like the ectopic pregnancy or something, to abort a fetus. Otherwise, you're a murderer. 
you better have a really, really good reason to divorce your husband or wife. They've left you and they've gone off with somebody else and won't repent. That's about it. Okay. Achdut, you see it in holy matrimony. They, they shall be one flesh. You see it in pregnancy, conception, in pregnancy. You see it in sexuality. All of these things are under attack. Now, again, it is a theme in the New Testament of the high priestly prayer in John, but we here we see it again with the high priest. It's a theme with the high priest. It is somehow connected with the high priestly function of Christ. So we have how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell together in unity. We don't think of it this way. But the scripture speaks of koinonia, shutafut in Hebrew. Or another term for fellowship in Hebrew is hithabrut, hithabrut. Lehithaber is the fellowship, but hithabrut. And it basically means bricks cemented together. Bricks cemented together or fastened together. Remember, Peter, we are in Oikos Hegios, the holy house. We're the temple. The church is the temple individually. We're the bricks of it. Well, you could have a brick, but what good is it if it's not cemented into the wall? <laughs> you walk into a church, and there's a hole in the wall there, a hole in the wall there. Where's the missing bricks? Oh, there they are in the middle of the church. The ones who are cemented in are part of the church. The others just come to church. There is a big difference between coming to church and coming to fellowship. Fellowship involves achdut, oneness. It involves oneness. And in the sight of God, where you have real fellowship, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, you have achdut, you have oneness. Now, in all of these things, in all of these things, is there friction in a marriage? Yes. Is there friction in a church? Yes. Iron sharpens iron. Thus a man strengthens his friend's countenance. We talked about this, I think, last week. Okay. Well, is, there is friction. One of the things that happens in fellowship, and God ordained marriage as matrimony is the first kind of fellowship, is he uses the friction to make the things fit together right. <laughs> this is in families, it's in marriages, but it's also in fellowships. It's in fellowships. There's a difference between coming to church and coming to fellowship. There's a difference between being a member of a church and a part of it. Two different things. The fellowship of the Holy Spirit. He holds us together as one. There is achdut. When you see churches fighting and dividing over things they should not fight and divide over. <sighs> Personality conflicts. Because of the hichuch, the friction. If there's unrepentant heresy or unrepentant immorality being tolerated, that's a way out of the achdut, okay? <laughs> if there's an ectopic pregnancy, well, that's a way out of the achdut. If the unbelieving partner in a marriage goes off with somebody, leaves his wife, his kids, or whatever, or she does, that's the way out of the achdut. But the way out of a church or a fellowship is the same thing. It's the same thing. You, you, we should not leave churches so easily. Neither should we join them so easily. <clears throat> when you get married to somebody, you're making a commitment. When a young couple decides to conceive a child, they're making a commitment. Now, when you make that commitment in holy matrimony, you're making the commitment not just to each other. You're making it to God. What God has joined together. In impregnation, 
You're making a commitment, not just to each other and not just to the baby, to God. I'm populating heaven. We're going to bring this kid up in the ways of Jesus unto salvation, unto life eternal. It's a commitment. Well, church membership in the real sense of koinonia in Greek, of chitabrut in Hebrew, or shoot the food, there's another word, but I won't bore you with the Hebrew now. <clears throat> it's a commitment. It's a commitment. When you see people going around bouncing this way, when you join a church and you commit yourself to membership, you are making a commitment. <clears throat> it's a commitment. If you want to get out of the Akdut, don't go into it to begin with. <clears throat> That's for anything. How good and how pleasant that is when brothers dwell together in Akdut. Verse 2. It's like the precious oil upon the head coming down upon the beard even Aaron's beard, coming down upon the edge of his robes. Now, we've talked about from John's Gospel, chapter 14 through chapter 17, Jesus is our high priest. When he took our sin and he hung on the cross in our place, he was our high priest making atonement on the altar. We are told clearly in the epistle to Hebrews, that the Aaronic high priest is a symbol, a shadow of Jesus, who would be of a different order other than the Aaronic order. He'd be of the order of Melchizedek, but the Aaronic order, the Aaronic high priest, is the shadow of Christ, the one who comes before the Father. The high priest could enter the Holy of Holies once a year on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, and on behalf of the people. And so when Jesus died, the temple veil was torn from the ceiling to the ground, reflecting what was happening in the heavenlies. Our high priest entered before the Father on our behalf. The Old Testament high priest is a picture of the Messiah. Okay. So notice the oil is put on the high priest's head. It comes off the beard and down the edge of the robes. Let's begin with oil, shemen. Shemen zayat, olive oil. <clears throat> the anointing of the spirit. Remember, different liquids in biblical typology represent the Holy Spirit in different aspects of his person, nature, and being. I'll say that again. If you don't know, again, a lot of our people do. In biblical typology, different liquids represent the Holy Spirit in different aspects of his person, nature, and function. Okay. Uh, the new wine or the living water. Okay. Well, it's also the oil, the anointing of the Spirit. You can do things, but unless it's under the anointing of the Spirit, <laughs> It's not going to bear too much fruit. Um, now, God's word does not return void. It does not necessarily depend on the man who speaks it. But for it to have the impact it could and should have, it must take place under the anointing of the Holy Spirit. Somebody can preach the gospel. But if they just explain the gospel without the anointing of the Spirit presenting it and the Holy Spirit speaking through them, <laughs> that's not going to be a very gifted evangelist. If somebody can expound the scripture, okay, God's word, and he may have it right academically, and he may be good in Greek and Hebrew and all these things, and these are good things. But without the anointing of the Spirit, that person is not going to have much impact on the body. 
Anything somebody does in ministry must be under the anointing of the Spirit. But let's look. It's poured on the head. And it comes down from the head, down the beard. And the, from the beard onto the robes. Notice it never touches the flesh. It never touches the flesh. Look with me, please, to Matthew chapter 7, verse 22. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Depart from me, ye wicked. I never knew you. They were never saved. Did Caiaphas prophesy accurately when he was conspiring to kill Jesus? We just mentioned this, I think, last week. Yes, he did. In his backslidden state, did King Saul prophesy? Is Saul among the prophets? Yes, he did. In the book of Acts, the Jewish exorcists who did not believe in, in Yeshua and Jesus were able to cast out some of the demons, weren't they? One, there's power in God's word, just because it's God's word, as I, we've said. Secondly, for the purposes of God, which usually has to do either with his, his glory, certainly always, but sometimes for the good of other people. The Holy Spirit will empower somebody who is not a believer to do something. You, you don't know them by their gifts, you know them by their fruit. Well, how could Saul have been among the prophets, and how could Caiaphas have prophesied? How could the Holy Spirit ever... They must have been Christian. No, no, depart from me. I never knew you. The oil never touches the flesh. If God blesses somebody, uses somebody, a Christian, a dedicated, sincere, righteous person, washed in the blood, it's nothing to do with them. <laughs> it's through them, but not by them. The oil never touches the flesh. Now, it's poured out on the head of the high priest. Who is the head of the body? The high priest is Jesus, but who is the head of the body? Christ. This goes back to Pentecost. In order to have the anointing of the Spirit, in order for a Christian to have the anointing of the Spirit, they must be attached to the body and under the headship of Christ. If someone is going to be anointed for ministry, for whatever God's called them to do. And whatever God has called you to do, no matter what your gift or calling is, it must be done under the anointing of the Spirit. That can only happen if we are under Christ and attached to the body. How good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell together in unity. You've seen hyper-charismatic heads. Bouncing around. They go from church to church, meeting to meeting. It's their social life. And they stand up and begin giving prophecy and words of knowledge and things like this. And then they go to another place. <laughs> and of course, a lot of it's bogus. A lot of it is. Well, they're not attached to a body. And if you're not attached to a body, you can't possibly be under the head. But if you're under the head, you'll be attached to the body. We've explained this before, but perhaps it's time to reiterate it. <clears throat> the eye is the lamp of the body. 
If the eye is sound, the body will be sound. Who gives light to the body? Well, teachers, what good is an eye if it's not in a socket? It can't see. How lovely on the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news. Ephesians 6, therefore shod your feet with the shoes of the gospel of peace. What good is an evangelist if he's not attached to a body? A foot is no good over in the corner. An eye is no good on the windowsill. Prophet here? What good is an ear if you cut it off and put it on a shelf? The gift of discernment. I smell a rat. Something stinketh in the state of Denmark. There's something wrong here spiritually. Or there's something right here. It's a sweet fragrance. If you cut off the nose <laughs> and put it on the table, what good is it? We are all members of the body, different gifts, different callings. Some are eyes, some are feet, some are whatever. <laughs> But in order to function correctly, we must function under the anointing of the Spirit. That requires us to be attached to the body and under the head. That is the only way the true church can really function. Remember, what we see in the Western world is not Christianity, it is churchianity. And most of what, and that's among believers, most of what the world calls Christian is not Christian, it is Christendom, completely different. It comes from the church fathers and the papacy and a lot of other things, but it doesn't come from the apostles. Well, let's look. It comes down, the precious oil, the Holy Spirit's precious. On the head, you must be under the head of the high priest. Over the edge of his robes. Again, the high priest had to have spotless robes. We speak of the garments of salvation, of course. But a high priest had a special robe. Now remember, the Levitical priesthood is a picture of the New Testament church. The Levitical priesthood is a picture of the New Testament church. We have the prophecy. He, that is the Messiah, shall purify the priests of Levi. We are the priests and priestesses, but Jesus is the high priest. The priesthood of all believers have nothing to do with any rotten denomination that dares to teach that there is a separate priesthood apart from the priesthood of all believers, that some people are ordained by the church and imbued with certain powers beyond the rest of us. Obviously, we speak of Rome, High Anglicanism, Eastern Orthodoxy. Keep away from these things. There is a priesthood of all believers, and Jesus is the high priest. It's not a separate priesthood headed up by the Pope. That is an antichrist counterfeit of what the church is supposed to be. It is not an ordained priesthood of Jesuits and Dominicans and whatever under the headship of the pontiff of Rome. It is the priesthood of all believers under our high priest, Jesus. Every one of us, a priest, the word for priest in Greek, weos, comes from the word temple, basically, 
It means to do with sacrificing. We are all called to present ourselves as a living sacrifice. The high priests brought sacrifices of worship. We bring sacrifices of praise. Every saved Christian is a priest. Everyone, male, female, everyone who's born again has been ordained into the priesthood, not by some denomination or by some pedophile hooligans from Rome, but by Christ himself. Not in Patty's wigwam up in Hope Street in Liverpool, but under the hand of Christ and that temple not made with human hands. Every one of us is a priest. Be very careful. If you see a denomination that has a priesthood apart from the priesthood of all believers, look out. But that's not to say there won't be clergy. It's not to say that there won't be people in full-time ministry and leadership, eldership, pastoral ministry, etc. That's something different. But the idea that some people are empowered as priests and others aren't, like in the Roman church, he can forgive sins and he can transubstantiate and whatever else they think they can do and, and molest kids and get away with it. I guess that goes with the, the holy orders or whatever. <coughs> no, no. There's only one who's above us. That's our high priest. The rest of us are equal. We may have different functions, but let's look. It comes down over the edge of the high priest's robes. We wear priestly garments. We wear priestly garments. We're a kingdom of priests. Verse 3. It's like the dew of Hermon, Mount Hermon, coming down upon the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord commanded the blessings, life forever. Now we know we have literal Zion in Jerusalem, and we know that that one is a picture of the eternal one, according to the epistle of Hebrews that we read about in the book of Revelation. Let's begin with Hermon. Mount Hermon, again, is where Galilee, Lebanon, and Syria come together. It's the highest mountain in Israel. Snow-capped about seven and a half months a year, about 10,000 feet above sea level. And it is the Mount of Transfiguration, certainly. It's the only exceedingly high mountain. Jesus had been at Caesarea Philippe, which is today called Banyas, so it had to be Mount Hermon. And there was a reason it was Mount Hermon. Hard Hermon, Mount Hermon, is where, according to Jewish history, the book of Yasher, the Nephilim came down. The Nephilim came down to do what they did. And to procreate demonoids. Now, we know that just as on the days of Noah, there's going to be some kind of incarnation of demonoids again in the book of Revelation, but we're not going there tonight. Just bear in mind, this has a future meaning. Point you to our teachings just as in the days of Noah and so forth. Meanwhile, and I know there's all kinds of conspiracy theorists about the Nephilim. I'm not talking about that. I'm just talking about what's in Scripture. Jesus said, just as in the days of Noah, and that's what happened. Well, when these demons came down and had sexual copulation with human women, this again, what was an attack on Achdut? <laughs> so when they come down, Christ goes up. And he microcosmically, microcosmically, and in, he microcosmically, in a prophetic foreshadowing, sets up 
a little bit of the Messianic kingdom. We know the Messianic kingdom will be the Feast of Booths fulfilled from Zechariah 14. We know that. Peter wants to build three booths. You've got Moses, a man who died faithful to God. Elijah, a man who never died, who was raptured. And Jesus, we meet the Lord in the air. Those of us who give up the ghost will be the same as those who are raptured. We're all transfigured the same. We shall be as he is. It doesn't matter if you snuff it. It doesn't matter if you're raptured out of here. We're all going to meet the Lord in the air. And Peter wants to build three booths. It is a prophetic microcosm of what's of the establishment of the Messianic kingdom. And it takes place on top of Mount Hermon. Now, let's talk about I'll give you living water. John 4, John 7. This he spoke of the Holy Spirit. We know that there's only, well, there's the higher cone, which is small. It's more of an inlet from the Mediterranean, kind of. And, and there's uh, the Brook of Kishon, which was a, actually a river. But the main river in Israel is the Jordan, Yarden. Yarden means going down from Dan, going down from Dan. Dan's was the tribe of Dan was a portion to the very north of Israel. Some of you have been there. And from the hills of Lebanon and things like this, you have the beginning of these brooks that eventually converge into forming the Jordan. But the Jordan would come down that way, these converging brooks, to the Hulda Valley at the foot of Mount Hermon. Now, the Zionist pioneers of the 19th and 20th century drained a lake called Hulda for purposes of agriculture and to control the malaria. It was alive with the Nofales mosquitoes. The, the larvae was all over the place. They needed to get rid of the plasmodium vivax, so they got rid of what was causing it. They destroyed the environment for the mosquitoes, and they reused the water for, to, to irrigate northern Galilee. But in biblical times, there was this lake. Now, you see where the Jordan gets big was this lake in the Hulda Valley, and you can still see elements of it. If you go to Banyas, to Caesarea Philippe, where Jesus sat upon this rock, and you see the water comes out, the cascade comes out of the water cave into this network of brooks that run down the slopes of, 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 of the foothills of Mount Hermon. Mount Hermon is more of a small chain than a single mountain, but it has one major peak into the Hulda Valley. This forms the Jordan. It makes the Jordan River. When the ice caps seasonally melt on Mount Hermon, the water permeates through the uh, aquifer, the water table inside the mountain, and it comes out at Banyas, at Caesarea Felipe. And it goes down into the Hulda Valley where there was once a lake. Meeting these brooks, this brook that comes down, made up of smaller brooks that come down from the tribe of Dan. This is known as the Upper Jordan. It flows a short distance in a southerly direction to the Kinetic, the Sea of Galilee. The Sea of Galilee gets its water from the Upper Jordan and from rainfall. Mainly, it gets its water from the upper Jordan and from rainfall. And the Sea of Galilee is the only really big lake in Israel. The, the nation depends on it, agriculturally and just for human sustenance. 
they've done things with desalination and they've made some man-made lakes and things like this, but without the Canary, Israel's dead. Which is why the Muslims want the Golan Heights. They nearly destroyed Israel in the early days of the state by attacking the kibbutzes along the Kinetic from the Golan Heights that overlook it on the east and on the northeast. There's more to the Golan Heights than real estate. The Muslims know Israel's survival as a nation depends on it. Literal biological survival, agricultural survival, human survival. The water comes from Hermon. The water that goes into the Jordan, the water that goes into the aquifers and into the water table is known as Maim Hayim, living water. John 7, a figure of the Holy Spirit, also referred to in John 4. Its other source is, of course, the rain and Isaiah 44.3. So it's like the dew of Hermon coming down upon the mountains of Zion. There the Lord commanded blessing life forever and ever. Notice something. The unity, the achdut, has certain ramifications that it produces. One of which is the anointing of the Spirit under the headship of Christ. The real unity of the Spirit will result in an anointing on the people of God. Secondly, it will be not only an empowerment, but it will be a consecration of the priestly robes. Then it produces the dew the living water. The church needs water as the living water, just as much as humans and animals and plants require water to survive, humans so require the living water to survive spiritually. When we have the unity of the spirits, when people are of one mind in Christ, where there is achdut, where there is a marriage with a husband and wife praying together, sleeping together in the Lord, having real achdut, procreation and so forth, where you have a fellowship, one in Christ, under his headship, with the anointing of his spirit, that spirit will be outpoured. The oil will be there, but then will come the dew. There is no formula for revival. Revival is God pouring out his spirit. There are principles of revival. There are things that are more conducive to it, but you can't make it happen by a formula. How do we look at this? When people repent and come together in unity and seek the Lord and begin preaching the gospel, that can bring the water. But only God can pour that water out. Only God can make it rain. When you see these people with formulas, and some of the formulas were so ridiculous, they were going to, to you remember, if you remember, they were going to Toronto, Canada, Pensacola, Florida, trying to make it rain. They were no different than, than a Native American Indian tribe doing a rain dance. 
trying to make it rain by doing it. It was just friend, just nuts. It's just nuts. It's not going to make it rain. Only God can make it rain. We can't make it rain, but we can prevent it from raining. <laughs> and we can do things that God will honor. And it begins with the unity of the spirit. Not just in friendships or in marriages, but in fellowships. You must be under the head and attached to the body to have the power. If that achdut is not there, it's not going to rain. It's not going to rain. Remember the first time it rained, the day of Pentecost when the Spirit was outpoured. The 120 were together. They were in Achtut, and the Spirit was not outpoured, but the Spirit was indwelling them. Jesus breathed on them. They were born again, but they had Achtut. Then the rain comes. The rain. It's like the dew of Hermon coming down upon the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord commanded the blessings. Blessing. Life forever. You think about it. Eternal life. That's what it's about. Death was never God's idea. He didn't want it. He tried to prevent it. He knew what would happen because he's God, but he tried to prevent it. He said, don't do that. He didn't want this. He didn't want any of this. For there the Lord commanded the blessing. Life forever. In the millennial reign of Christ is going to be Achdut. And in eternity in heaven there will be achdut. We are supposed to have as much of it now as we can in marriage, in fellowship, in ministry. How good and how pleasant it is when brothers dwell together in unity. Hinema tov shevet achim gam yachat. 